You're listening in Markasahaba Online Radio Podcast. Alhamdulillah, it's time to join our very own Ibrahim Vadachia on his segment Travel Express. Ibrahim Ba, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me how you're doing this a beautiful Tuesday evening. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. All good on this idea. Yeah, alhamdulillah, everything's going well. The weather's been a bit dodgy, but other than that, it's nice to have a cool day, given the fact that we had a few blistering days over the weekend. So, uh, yeah, all is yeah. good. Yeah, absolutely, especially living in the south coast or you in the east coast there. Uh, you find uh, that uh, the rain comes, uh, the greenery comes through, <laughs> and uh, then uh, the municipality gets uh, even busier. And uh, you find, uh, you know, those that are, do the work regularly, those that were lazing mm-hmm. around and, you know, have, uh, you can see imbibed a lot of food uh, during their work time. Uh, they are gone for holiday, and mm. now you've got the casual workers coming through. How do they adapt uh, to, you know, the work at hand? Because uh, to most of them, uh, you know, they are not used to these types of things. Do they get into the culture of work, or do they let the city season, you know, just take them along with the backwash, uh, Ba? Uh, look, uh Strange you should mention that, but uh, driving home the, this afternoon, I noticed uh, a, a crew, a gang of them uh, cleaning the uh, pavement, you know, now when I say pavement, the gutter, basically, and edging the uh, the verge that is all, almost always overgrown and the pavement itself, you know, where the water runs, that's invariably full of uh, weeds and stuff like that. Now, this must be scab labor that they've just put on there because uh, this is something... Uh, that they should be doing on a weekly basis. Basically, the idea is the the main thoroughfares. They would uh, have to sweep that on both sides of the road. Either it used to be, it used to be every day. Then it went to uh, twice a week, and then once a week, and then even that once a week has vanished into the blue yonder. And uh, 100 meters down each side street. Well, of course, they don't even look at the side streets, right? So they just did a makeshift job and uh, they left their bags everywhere to be collected, Allah knows by whom, but <laughs> at least they did it. So uh, to answer your question, the thing is, uh, look, anyone can wield a spade or a shovel or whatever, a hoe or a broom. And uh, to their credit, they've done a decent job. And I'm not sure what happened to the uh, the uh, full-timers, whether they've been put off on short time or they don't have the money to pay them, which is why they would just hire maybe an independent contractor to do this on an ad hoc basis. Tell you, Ba, when I get a gabrat, when I see there's a right, uh, you know, these uh, electricians come through, and especially for the private contractor, hmm. nine out of ten times, I think I, I harp on this, Nine out of ten times when they come, my heart is in my mouth. Yeah. I said, they're going to fix that. And this is great. Hey, next moment, you, my, my lights will go off. I'm going to have a problem. <laughs> ba, ba. Nine out of ten times. <laughs> my, my fears are realized. Why is this so, Ba? Well, I guess uh, they hire the people that they can afford to. Because I know a lot of instances where even the contractors don't want to come out and respond to their call because they don't get paid on time. And uh, they take what they can get. And uh, chances are those guys might not necessarily be the uh, most suited or fit for purpose or have the requisite experience to do the job at hand. And I think therein lies a problem and the realization of your worst fears. I know (laughs) the last time they came to fix lights, that must have been a few years ago. 
the light stayed on in the day and went off at night. So how does that grab you? Because <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not telling you a word of lie. No, no, <laughs> I believe you, Ba. I mean, amazing. And then uh, we just had this other story where uh, I think 35 million uh, rand yes. worth of lighting was yes. stolen from the depot. Exactly. And it was going to Maputo mm-hmm. uh, and they call, uh, got this on a roadblock. Yep. So you can imagine what's going on in uh, Itikweni, Ba. Yeah, well, I think this is this is something, it's across uh, the board, you know, it's nationwide, where the, uh, let me just phrase this thing correctly, lest, lest someone shoots me down in flames. The thing is, a uh, lot of uh, cases have been discovered where there is an insider connection, meaning that uh, the syndicates have someone on the inside that's also benefiting from the theft and uh, redistribution of whatever property that the state or the municipality owns. So uh, this is what the problem is, Bar. And the thing is, unfortunately, unless and until that cartel is broken up, and not it's not an isolated thing. It stretches from drug running, prostitution, uh, hijacking, uh, you know, theft of uh, trucks and all that sort of thing, and the cargo thereof. So it runs across the board, even the cash in transit. You've got to have someone on the inside to give you the kind of information and, of course, some sort of cover-up and protection if things go south. So uh, this is what the reality of the situation is, and uh, that's just one lucky find that they stopped this car and they uh, vehicle and they found that in. What about the other 99.9% that slipped through the porous net? Hmm? Yeah, that's a, you know, you make a good point there. Now, what about those hmm. uh, parties that openly and blatantly you know, supported uh, the Zionist aggression in, on Palestine. And mm. we have uh, these parties, uh, you know, they, they, they mentioned, we know who they are, ba. but the sad part is that we have uh, some of our brothers, our brothers, Muslim brothers, that are part and parcel of this party. And it seems as if our brothers uh, don't want to let go. Uh, how would you read them, Ba? Well, it's very uh, simple, but the thing is, at the end of the day, if you are Muslim, let alone a Muslim, a mu'min, a believer in Allah, then the thing is, everything that you feel, think, say, or do goes through that filter, those filters that I just mentioned, to uh, sort of make sure that you don't even do anything that's going to earn the displeasure of your creator. But for these people, I think it's a question of greed. It's a question of uh, amassing as much as they can while they can in that uh, position, insofar as uh, influence, material, and financial benefits and things like that. So uh, they'll pay lip service. And of course, when they feel like that, uh, oh, yeah, okay, uh, it's Juma today, let me go to the mosque and things like that. But uh, ultimately, that is that is what it is. I mean, if you have your head screwed on right, and if you claim to be a Muslim and you know your religion and you practice your religion, the thing is, the honorable thing to do when, when things like this happen is to walk out of it. But uh, they cannot for the life of them. In fact, uh, we had an incident. Uh, this is our manager now, our general manager. She uh, posted something on the WhatsApp groups. And there is, uh, I think, a lady in the North Beach or something that represents the the party uh, in question. And she took umbrage at it. Of course, our GM, being a feisty character, put her in place very easily. 
asking her basically, so it's okay for you to be killing all these children and all that sort. It means nothing to you. What if it were your own? Then would you be still sitting there and, and, and singing the same song from the same hymn sheet? Of course, it went on back and forth, but ultimately what you are saying is correct. And it's a shame to think that our so-called Muslim brothers and sisters, if there are any involved with that party, that is sort of uh, giving them a get out of jail free card and a free pass, irrespective of the uh, the barbaric murder of innocence that's going on every day over there. Yeah, but the stories, uh, you know, when the looting took place and people said, who do we vote for? And there were Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, when the people, exactly. those that voted for these people really got busted. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. like a gin buster. And no, they were in a certain, well, certain... Let, me, let me just say this very clearly. They are in a lousy situation right now. They don't know which way to turn. Of course, they'll do the best they can, whether it's putting blue toilets on the promenade or doing whatever nonsense, putting red towels out somewhere with names of hostages or whatever the case may be. But the, what they fail to understand or they, they, they won't admit that this just didn't start on the 7th of October. It's not just about Hamas. It's a history of Palestine from 1947 when they drove all the people out and ever since they've been treating them worse than than, than the rubbish. That's what they're doing, doing to them. And they expect people to sit back and love them. Crazy people. It's not going to happen. And you know, Allah has given and he has blessed these Palestinians with resilience like no other. I have never seen another people that have got so much of guts, courage, gumption, and patience to put up with whatever they are throwing at them. And and rest assured that so-called uh, ground uh, operation into Gaza, they are getting their backsides handed to them, all right, eh? Make no mistake, they are not giving you any uh, stats, but where you get from the alternative uh, media and things like that, it's not quite a party because all the, uh, the so-called occupation forces are fit for is uh, shooting, uh, killing from a distance, uh, innocent men, women, children, elderly, and things like that. They, they cannot fight man to man with someone that is on equal footing, that's armed, and is most time superior to them in the, in, in the fight. They just, and they, more than anything else, they are afraid to die. They are cowards. That's all they are. Yeah, uh, but, you know, when it comes uh, to your comments and uh, your thinking, you politic at a very high level, Ba. Well, UN rehabilitates uh, Somali airport to ease air travel. I've been to uh, Mogadishu. I've been to that airport there. And you know what, Ba? <laughs> I tell you, I, I think, I don't know if you had that experience. When that plane is flying to the, that airport is literally on the sea sand. Yeah. I, like know, say, I know. Oh, so you've been there. Yeah, Descri yeah. Describe that to the people. You'll say, hey, if I can't swim. Hey, in I'm trouble. in trouble because yeah, you feel the yeah, plane is going to hit yeah, the, the sea. The thing is, the approach, of course, you think you're going to land in the drink, right? <laughs> they drink, I mean, the, the, the water there. But uh, no, it is, uh, well, look, uh, I think we should, uh, first of all, understand the location of Somalia right in the Horn of Africa. And, uh, you know, forgive me for saying this, but the thing is, I think there's more than uh, just a charitable sort of feeling, fuzzy feeling on the part of the United Nations to upgrade that airport. Because, uh, you know, there are all sorts of other uh, things that come into play because of the strategic location of that airport in uh, Somalia, the southwest state of Somalia. So, uh, yeah, the, basically, uh, you know, on the topic of upgrading the airport, 
the United Nations Support Office in Somalia. That's called UNSOS, basically. And uh, the southwest state of Somalia have revitalized Baidoa's Shati Gadud International Airport and thereby delivering a boost to the safety and services for eager travelers. Not sure how much of traffic goes through there, Bob, but I would think it's still an important uh, airstrip insofar as uh, cargo and all the rest of it. And of course, you know, the protection racket that the UN and others run over there to bring in the equipment and stuff like that. And uh, this was, uh, this runway, the original runway was built way back in 1972, so a long, long time. And uh, thankfully, passengers can now enjoy a peace of mind and uh, a better travel experience. They don't have to have their hand in their mouth when they're coming into land, because I believe that uh, runway was in uh, quite a bad condition. So much so that fixed wing aircraft, meaning the normal aircraft that you find, I'm not talking about the choppers and others, but uh, yeah, they had stopped uh, flying for some time. They were suspended from flying this purely because of the uh, decrepit nature of the uh, airport and uh, runway, so much so that they were even considering closing that airport down. But uh, I think uh, what had uh, what prompted the U UN to do this part was that uh, Mogadishu by Doha Road. Oh, that's another, that's a perilous road to go. You can get mm. hit at any time from anywhere. So I think they had to have that uh, airport to fly in and out of, you know. So uh, I think that is what uh, sort of gave impetus to them wanting to resurface and re, uh, you know, rehabilitate that uh, runway. And of course, uh, only now this was done, but uh, the main constraints were financial and technical resources on the part of the Somalian authorities. So they are grateful to the UN for having intervened and uh, sort of refurbished the uh, runway. And uh, basically they only fixed two kilometers of runways and taxiways. I don't think uh, <laughs> it was, yeah, it, uh, it's a fact. It wasn't such a big deal because it's not such a big airport, you know. Yeah. And, uh, of course, uh, now it allows the uh, takeoff and landing of uh, larger aircraft. And uh, I guess it augurs well for the country. It is such a poor country, of course, and the airport manager expressed gratitude for the transformation from a hazardous space to a haven for, for safe flights and the lives and property of the uh, people that are transiting or flying from that airport. So that's the story there, Ba. You know, absolutely. And, uh, you know, what a beautiful country destroyed by uh, this war with the yeah. Americans are being the main culprits. Yeah. You know, we went and looked at the... Uh, uh, you know, they are, they are everywhere doing the same thing, you know. I, I don't know what to say anymore, truly. No, absolutely. And all... Uh, uh, what was it? All, in the name, all in the name of democracy, of course. Democracy and all, uh, you know, yeah. uh, Italian architecture, yeah. beautiful seashores and so mm -hmm. forth. Uh, they ruined a, a beautiful country indeed. And now, as you said, for two, uh, two kilometers of tarmac, uh, they made a big headlines of the whole thing. It's, and, uh, amazing. <laughs> it's amazing, Ba. And then, then uh, we talk about, uh, you know, everyone talks about, hey, passport, passport, <laughs> and uh, this passport, and some maybe <clears> know about pa passport wives in this country. But if you think uh, you're having a Passport trouble, ba. Spare thought for Pakistani citizens unable to get passports due to shortage of lamination papers. And we know what the Pakistani military mm. has done, how they have sold ammunition to Ukraine mm. and they've sold their souls to literally to the devil. And uh, I think Ibran Khan's case started today, uh, will be judged by a military court. Go ahead, ba. 
Well, that you can, instead of military court, you'd rather just call it a kangaroo court and be done with it. Absolutely. Because, yeah, the decision taken to fate a company. Okay, coming to this situation, yeah, the Pakistanis are facing a, a passport predicament unlike ours. Ours is totally different. Basically, as you mentioned, there is a scarcity of laminating paper. Now, you know where that goes, right? It's on that last page or depending on which, which side the passport operates, uh, where it is uh, quite a firm sort of plasticated sort of affair where all your details are inserted so much so that you cannot or should not be able to tamper with it. So they don't have uh, enough of that laminating paper. And uh, therefore, the production, the passport production has come down to a trickle, if not a halt altogether. And unfortunately, this crisis has impacted negatively because of the substantial de delays on the uh, dreams and the uh, travel plans of many individuals over there who are uncertain, you know, whether they are going to get a passport to be able to meet the deadline. Some of them are, of course, students that have got visas and are due to land at a specific time, and others have business affairs and things like that. Some are even on work or leisure, and uh, there's no immediate solution, Pa. Uh, there's one case, there's one Mr. Gould that was at the, anticipating to move to Dubai just for work, and he expresses uh, frustration at what he sees, and I think correctly so, is gross mismanagement on the part of the Director General of Immigration and Passports. And uh, it's potentially hindering his opportunity to get out there and maybe escape from the poverty that he is stricken with currently. Another student that was due to go to uh, Italy to study, right? Uh, she wanted to know why, why, why is she being penalized for a government department incompetence and inefficiency. Basically, uh, this has put paid to her plans and she's got to make others just to see if she can still get in if and when she gets a passport issued. Now, the government is giving you the same old tired excuse. We are actively addressing the crisis, blah, 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 expressing confidence in resolving the situation. We all know what's going to happen there, right? These guys are just going to be hung out to dry unless and until something, you know, crazy happens and they do get the, the paper that they are looking for to uh, start issuing. So already there is a considerable backlog. You'll know that we had a similar circumstance here where the uh, uh, machine that uh, printed the uh, driver's license broke down and, <laughs> and we had to wait, I think, for mm. six or eight months or more before we got a license. So I think uh, they're going to face a similar thing. Only thing, instead of us having to put up with the license uh, inconvenience, they cannot move without a passport. So, uh, yeah, one has to feel for them. And let's just hope that uh, the, the people in charge get their act together and get this thing back on the road. Absolutely, Ba. And then uh, moving uh, to our tourism minister, mm -hmm. Patricia DeLille. Too good to be true. Uh, tourism bodies yeah. rally behind a minister following allegations that she is bringing South African tourism to its knees. Ba? Yeah, I think, look, uh, with, uh, with respect to her and credit to her for what she's trying to achieve, she came in at a bad time where the uh, SA tourism uh, uh, vehicle was really uh, had the wheels fallen off from the previous mismanagement and of course she's uh, trying to do her best and I think basically where the main criticism comes by is that uh, she has held back on appointing a permanent 13-member board and that in its own uh, way impacts uh, the uh, timing of the uh, funding that gets uh, given to them by Treasury. 
Now, a lot of people saw that as a negative uh, sort of uh, action on her part, but I can see the wisdom in, in her ways in the sense that it's pointless uh, putting people that are not fit for purpose into positions like it's a very important position. And the thing is, uh, it is felt very sorely and very painfully by us because of the loss of revenue and incoming uh, tourism into the country. And uh, the main tourism bodies in South Africa, including Asata, Fedhasa, Satsa, Saki, and, 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 have rallied behind uh, Dalil and they say, no, this uh, accusation is definitely not justified. And uh, this was in response to a News 24 article that claimed that she had clashed with Parliament's Portfolio Committee on Tourism because of that delay in appointing that board I just mentioned. And uh, of course, she's denied all the allegations. And uh, I think in a joint statement, they commended, I'm talking about these uh, uh, tourism bodies, they commended her for fostering open communication, collaboration, and public-private uh, sectors uh, intersection. And uh, of course, they lauded her leadership for establishing structured engagement and nurturing tourism growth and promoting SA as a premier destination. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how successful that has been thus far because it's still early days and we don't even have a standing member aboard for SA tourism. Just as an aside from that, I know the mayor has been trying to have meetings over here and inviting all parties uh, that are involved with it. Of course, I didn't go because it's just going to be another talk shop and nothing special will come out of it. And this is purely about uh, and tourism. And then I do know that on the 25th, the, uh, the uh, Durban Chamber of Commerce and Industry has invited us again as a follow-up meeting. I might attend that just to listen to what they've got to say and see if anything Transpired. That's going to be held with the city manager. Now, coming back to this uh, story with uh, the Lil, uh, by and large, you know, all these uh, CEOs and uh, managers and others in, in uh, top positions, they uh, sort of uh, gave her the nod and said, look, she's doing a good job, you know, a fair job as such. And they appreciated her swift action on issues like the diesel rebate and visa system that are crucial for rebuilding the tourism sectors. And uh, I think collectively they said that they were happy with the, for strengthening transparency, implementing financial controls, and appointing leaders with private sector expertise. And of course they stand united behind her and they are uh, positive or they hope to work closely together with her and uh, you know make a success out of South African tourism. Gee, by now, looking at your stature, the way you walk, and you know, you still got that sprite in you. I took it for granted. You're a strong swimmer, Ba? Well, strong enough to save my life. <laughs> now, don't joke, Ba. You mean you only do the doggy paddle? No, no, no. I do swim. Now, you look a butterfly. Freestyle is your favorite uh, stroke, mm -hmm. Ba. Oh, then you're a good swimmer. Don't uh, undervalue yourself. You're a good swimmer. I mean, we grew up here. We had the yeah. opportunity of swimming in the uh, half-size Olympic pool here in Spingo yeah, Beach. Yeah, then we had the ocean. Uh, mm -hmm. we, uh, you prefer ocean swimming or swimming pool? Well, six of one, half a dozen or the other. Well, it depends. Uh, it's always nice to go to the beach. I like the salt water. And uh, the swimming pool can get a bit uh, crowded, too full of chlorine sometimes and things like that. So I guess uh, mm. I go wherever, you know, it takes me. Yeah. But what I love of the ocean bar, 
you know, that waves hits you, you could feel mm-hmm. how therapeutic that you can, you're getting a, you know, like a yeah, spa you, and all. You know, when we were younger still, we'd be walking around barefoot, you know that, right? And uh, all we had possession then was a pair of school shoes and we had to look after it like anything. And if we got cuts and things like that, you know, on our feet and things like that, when we went to the beach, you came back home and you, after you had a shower, you found that that uh, little wound was almost all already healed. And that's the therapeutic nature of that salt water that we go in. Absolutely. The ocean are very therapeutic indeed. One of the finest washing machines indeed. Mm-hmm. The way it washes things and throws it back. Bobby talking about the ocean. Yeah, we talk about safety tips if you're planning to spend time in the water this summer, Ba. Mm. Yeah, well, this uh, statistics uh, were released by the NSRI, which is the National Sea Rescue Institute. Yeah, of course, we've got excellent weather, excellent beaches, and of course, come summer, everybody is down on the beach. So, uh, unfortunately, they reveal that we have approximately 1,484 drownings actually annually in South Africa. And with a significant 29%, that uh, equates to 450 occurring among children under the years of 14 under the age of 14 years old, Ba. So uh, to ensure the safety and enjoyable experience at the beach, pools and other bodies of water, they have put out a nine point uh, sort of uh, plan for you to just adhere to or make note of or, you know, be wary of before uh, letting the kids out of your sight. And basically, there are rules, as you know, for waterside activities, including checking the wind, weather and tides before venturing to the beach, whether you're going fishing, swimming, boating, whatever, and the need to carry emergency contact numbers on your phone or with you, informing someone of your location, expected return time and uh, not turning your back to the sea and wearing a life jacket when necessary. These are basic and essential precautions one one should take. Now, coming back to the uh, nine points that I just mentioned, whoever is going to be going anywhere near any body of water, yeah, uh, basically this is related more to the beach. It is said that uh, swim at beaches with lifeguards on duties and uh, basically they are there to save lives. That's why they call them lifesavers and lifeguards and swim between the flags so that they can keep an eye on you. If you go left or right of it, of course, you're on the periphery and they might just miss you because they are focused on the crowd that is in that area between the flags. And uh, again, that uh, leads to the next one. It says, uh, don't swim alone. Always have a buddy to call for help if necessary. And of course, avoiding uh, consumption of alcohol before swimming because that, of course, uh, poses serious dangers in the water. And if you've got uh, children, you better make sure you know how many children are in your under your supervision and care and make sure that they are all there because the next big wave comes and before you know it, one of them is missing and then you're in trouble. And uh, of course, the adults should always be close, very close, in fact, uh, ahead of them. And I say ahead, meaning closer to the, to the waves, the incoming waves than the children and keep an eye on them. And uh, you've got to know how to survive rip currents. Rip currents are those ones that pull you straight out into sea. Uh, basically, you've got to stay calm. Don't swim against the current. Swim parallel to the shore and and wait until you can find a area of calmer water that you can swim back to the shore. That's given the fact that you can swim. But uh, 
from uh, our own observation, uh, especially come Christmas and uh, New Year festive season, the ones that cannot swim are the ones that will be further inside the, the what's the name, the the mm. sea. Yeah, always. Don't ask me why, but uh, that's what it is here. And uh, don't attempt a rescue yourself, alert a lifeguard and throw something that floats and call emergency services and avoid avoid pool inflatables at open water sites. Like, you know, you get these people taking tubes and things like that because that floats and you can be carried away out to sea before you know it. So uh, you gotta be careful. And of course, in the pool, you'll be just impinging on other people's, uh, you know, ability to have fun as well. And uh, the main thing is understand that drowning is silent. So when you're in trouble and uh, you're getting mouthfuls of water going down all the time, it's very rare that you'll you know be able to even scream. You'll be so panic-stricken, scared of going. So parents and guardians should stay focused on the children or in or near the water. And uh, hopefully, if you adhere to all these, then uh, chances are you'll have a decent summer and return home safely. Well, Bob, yeah, absolutely uh, important points uh, you have uh, you know highlighted there. But uh, yeah, let's do this last topic. If you're visiting uh, or planning on visiting Egypt, mm-hmm. you should do it. Do it now, Musri Ba. I'm not so sure eh, because the potential for, for yes. regional conflict is 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 you know quite real. Imagine. But uh, look, uh, yeah, this is what they're saying. Uh, amid concerns about the impact of conflicts in the Gaza Strip uh, on Egypt's tourism, the uh, tourism minister, some Ahmed Issa announced incentives to support the industry in southern Sinai on the Red Sea. And despite some delayed reservation for years end, Egypt's uh, tourism sector is on track to earn over $13 billion, uh, targeting some 15 million visitors uh, for the entire 2023. And uh, while the S&P Global, which is of course one of these people that give you ratings and things like that, uh, warned of potential tourism decline due to the conflict in Gaza, uh, affecting uh, the region there, especially Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon. Uh, he stated that the impact on Egypt booking is currently less than 10%. So I don't know why they are giving incentives if it's only 10%. It must be more than that. Uh, he mentioned that the most significant impact is on customers who purchase regional products, particularly due to the shutdown of the tourism sector in Israel. And to counteract potential setbacks, Egypt is offering an additional $500 in incentives per flight landing in Sharm el-Sheikh. That's a very popular diving and uh, seaside resort for those who are not aware. And of course, actively collaborating with stakeholders, industry stakeholders to maintain commitment to the country. And uh, surprisingly, tourist numbers have risen by 7% compared year on year and a strong contribution from Germany and unexpected growth from China, the reasons, main reasons. And uh, they're looking to expand the tourism sector by uh, oof, very uh, optimistic 30% annually. I think uh, they are setting the bar quite high. And uh, they aim to increase private sector involvement, including managing services uh, at tourism sites and airports. And additionally, they are expecting and anticipating a boost from the delayed Grand Egyptian Museum near the Giza uh, pyramids that's set to officially open uh, in early uh, 2024, possibly any time between February and May next year. There's been a whole spate of delays for one or the other reason. 
And uh, <clears throat> the uh, ongoing efforts aim to secure Egypt's position as a leading tourist destination despite regional challenges. So that's what it's all about. They are looking to bolster the tourism industry and make sure because that's the only thing that brings in all the money. You know, if you get more and more tourists coming in, the tourism spend is what really, you know, creates jobs and, and sort of boosts the economy. And that can be just an overnight thing if you have like a festival or, a, a you know, an event or something of the sort. So I think this is what they are looking at, uh, you know, given the conditions in the Middle East area to try and uh, insulate themselves from any uh, further deterioration in the in the situation. Yeah, it seems as if about the Westerners or the Europeans are more addicted to tourism uh, and mm-hmm. the uh, Chinese are learning the trick too. Well, the Indians, uh, they had one trip, you know that, India. <laughs> hey, I went with the Karanja, I went with the Kampala. Where you went? I went to India. Abba? Mm. Are we, <laughs> I mean, you're in the travel game. Mm. <laughs> the Indians love the India, Abba. Mm. There is no doubt about that. Yeah. <laughs> You've been on the Karanja, Abba? Yeah, I, went, mm, I must have been a, very young then. Yes. I yeah. remember all those patties with those big locks and you know, those metal ones. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I mean, the carrom board and <laughs> what, the whole world that went with you. And the Gudris and all came from India, ba? Everything. Yeah, and there was at the customs you had those uh, <laughs> those mamus, or yeah. they call them the chachas. Yeah, yeah. They would yeah. come to you and say, Ibrahim, mm. yeah, get now ten pounds or five pounds. <laughs> I'll get everything. I'll take it all out for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, those were the days, ba. Your parting words uh, this evening. Yeah, given the circumstances and the situation we find in the Middle East, it's very sad. And uh, there's a saying from Tacitus, I think he was a Roman uh, member of the government at some stage, and it goes like this. It says, they ravage, they slaughter, they seize by false pretenses, and all of us they hail as construction of empire. And when in their wake nothing remains but a desert, they call it peace. So this is what it's all about. Wow. Absolutely. That was at the time of the Roman Empire. Now, where we are, what has changed, Pa? Nothing. I'll add to that. Generations change. Yeah. But the message still stays the same, and yeah. you hit the nail on the head, Pa. You yeah. have a beautiful evening ahead. Inshallah, we'll talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam, and thank you for the opportunity again, Pa, to you, and of course, Radio Marka Sahaba and our. Faithful listeners out there, have a wonderful evening ahead. Jazakallah khair, Yes, I'd like to thank Lukolo for great engineering. Keep it locked on to Marcus Sahaba for beautiful programming. From the team and I, till we meet you again, we bid you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.